Hey everyone, this is going to be the fourth and final episode in the career series, at least for now. And for this episode with the American College of Physicians, we're diving into the world of quality improvement, or QI. Today, there's a bunch of names for it, QI, quality assurance, QA, quality and safety, QNS, but it all comes down to the same thing, thinking about the healthcare system in which you work in and how to make it better. So for this episode, we're not going to get into the technical stuff, the fishbone diagrams, lean, PDSA cycles. This episode's about crafting a career in quality and safety. First, we will get into how do most people get started in this path? Then we'll get into what are some of the areas of expertise that are needed to be successful in QI. Next, what does a typical day look like in QI depending on which hat you wear? And then we'll end with some tough conversations on what are the challenges that can come with QI work and how do you navigate it? I'm Dr. Shreya Trivedi, and here it is. The better you are at quality and safety, the better clinician, the better leader you will be. To me, it's about understanding what you need to do to facilitate change. We in healthcare cannot compete on patient safety. We must share our lessons learned. How did it get this way? Why is it like this? Is there anything I can do to make it better? If you are a clinical chief, medical director, if you are just a great doc, you should learn this as a core competency. When I spoke to our expert discussants, I quickly realized if there were to be a so-called illness script for how careers and quality improvement usually happen, it often starts with a moment of frustration or curiosity about something that's not working well in the system. For Dr. Maureen Batalden, now the Chief Quality Officer at Cambridge Health, her moment came when she was a young hospitalist. And I had really been working at the Cambridge Health Alliance for about five years, I think, before I saw patient satisfaction data, which is sort of an epiphany for me because our patient experience of care data was not so great. She was shocked because she and her colleagues were doing their very best working hard only to learn that their unit was producing poor experiences for patients. And that was a real kind of galvanizing conundrum for me because I felt like I was working hard and I felt like I was a good doctor bringing a lot of myself to the job every day. And I felt like the people around me were working very hard and bringing a lot of themselves to the job every day. And so that the net effect of all of these good people doing good work and working really hard at it was actually not producing the outcomes that we had expected was a real beginning place for me. And to unpack that, she had to understand her workplace in a completely different way, something she calls the clinical microsystem. A unit, a hospital ward, is a clinical microsystem. It's a group of people that come together every day to produce a set of shared outcomes. But in actual fact, the people who work on that unit, they all have different bosses. They report up through the organization in different ways. You know, there's a nurse manager who's responsible for the nurses, and then there's a group of hospitalists who have a boss who is a doctor and those people rotate in and out of care of patients on that unit. And then there are consultants that come in and out and there are residents that come in and out and there's a physical therapist and there's a respiratory therapist and there's housekeeping staff. And there's all of these different kinds of people that come together and they are in fact a part of a system that is producing an outcome, but they don't necessarily see themselves as part of that same system. She became curious. Where were the blind spots in this clinical ecosystem? 
And so similar to how most careers in QI start, she raised her hand and volunteered to get involved. Because we realized that one of the first things that a patient might hear when they wheel up to the unit was, does anybody know whose patient this is? <laughs> and we decided that probably wasn't a great start to your hospital experience. So it didn't matter that she was working so hard, doing a good job as a clinician in her silo. She had to think outside the box to the waiting room, to how staff were talking about patient care, to what magazines were on the side table, to the overall culture of the place. That was the clinical ecosystem, and that was what the patients were experiencing. And then you get sort of bitten by a bug that actually finds the system and its complexities interesting in and of themselves, and you build expertise through projects, through problem solving, one problem at a time. An expertise in problem solving, one problem at a time. That makes me wonder, does one need to have a master's or a fellowship in QI to be that expert problem solver? To answer the question about formal training, I purposely went to Dr. Angela Tess, who's the Associate Chair of Education at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, and actually runs the Master's in Quality and Safety at Harvard Medical School. Even though I should be the first person to say yes to that question, given what I do, I think the answer is no. I think that there are a lot of people who are out doing this work, including myself and others at least 15 years junior to me, who have learned this on the job. That is with the caveat that in the future, more and more employers may be looking for that formal training to be competitive. And what Dr. Tess is currently seeing is that her graduates are getting jobs out of training at much higher echelons in quality leadership. And that might be because formal training is much more than just learning quality science and growing that problem-solving mindset getting to know your instructors. It's spending some time in their institutions. It's asking, can they come to your meetings? That is the voice of Dr. Elizabeth Mort, a primary care doctor and the senior vice president of quality and safety at Mass General Hospital. It's having a mentoring cup of coffee and saying, is there a problem you can, I can help you with? And then what about career opportunities? So during your fellowship, you're not just learning to get your expertise, but you're networking and you're beginning to chart your course through mentoring as to where you might go next. Time and time again, I am always surprised at how much networking can give a leg up and leverage in the real world. But what if I'm not in a position to do a master's or some certificate program? So if you want to move into quality and safety and you can't access a training program at the moment, but you want to get some applied experience, here's what you need to do. You need to talk to people and you need to ask them, what are your problems? Is there anything I can help you with? What are you worried about? What keeps you up at night? You know, I never thought to ask a leader so directly, what can I help you with? I always thought it was a cop-out to actually ask others for projects. And for whatever reason, I always thought I needed to come in with my own unique ideas, passions, and interesting questions. So I would say you need to be open-minded and strategic in the sense that you may really want to solve, oh, reduction in readmissions after pneumonia. That may be your passion. But if that is not the pressing issue for a leader in the institution, they might ask you to work on employee slips and falls because let's just say they had an uptick in it. And they say, oh, you know, I'm worried about employee slips and falls. I think everybody is looking at their iPhones. And we need to do something about it. And if you say, well, I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in pneumonia. You've missed an opportunity. 
learn something about employee slips and falls. And that makes sense because in QI, you're an expert in processes regardless of the problem. And this really clicked for me when I started to compare QI to research. Research is a field where you hold near and dear to your heart one or two topics. You are the person on pneumonia. In QI, you could be working on a project on fall risk and then team huddles and then clinic A1C goals. So now that I get QI a bit more, what are the big areas in QI that one really needs to understand or get good at to be successful in QI? One of the main areas in quality and safety is learning from errors. How do you learn from errors? Well, most organizations have some kind of a safety reporting system or event reporting system. You learn a lot about an organization when you look at their rate of safety reporting, the way in which events come in, who submits them, are they events with harm, are they near misses, how people analyze them in an organization, and how you learn from them. So I think one of the biggest buckets, one of the most important areas of expertise is really understanding safety reporting and improvement. I think um, clinical compliance is really important. There are regulatory agencies that we all need to understand and literally abide by the rules and help shape the rules. Hmm. I've never really thought about safety reporting or clinical compliance, and understanding it seems pretty complicated. But Dr. Mort says there's a pretty obvious way that it shows itself, if you just look. And that's in the overall safety culture. That is a vague term. Culture, I like to think about it as, in your organization, what does business as usual look like when it comes to patient and provider safety? If you walk down your hallway and you see a spilled cup of coffee, do people walk around it or do they stop, call somebody on their cell phone and look to see if there is a a tent, you know, these little plastic tents and grab it off the wall and put it down on the floor so nobody slips. That's something that you can see visibly that says something about the business as usual approach to spilled uh, beverages in your hallway. And there are many timeouts, labeling specimens in front of patients, etc. And then obviously another area of expertise is all the formal QI language and tools. Improvement skills, process improvement, Six Sigma, Lean is very, very important. There are many, many different flavors, I would say, of process improvement. Most organizations pick one or two methodologies and use it consistently, but that is an area of expertise that people should understand. And the last area of expertise. Human factors huge. We're all human beings. And despite the fact that we have the good fortune of lots of technology, there are human beings involved in just about all of them in the delivery of care. And we need to understand how human beings work, what they can and cannot do, what makes them successful, what makes them make errors. And adjusting things around human factors is very, very important. Man, I just feel like I got a homework assignment of things to get really good at. Like, what is safety culture in my hospital? How are errors reported? I guess I got to go learn what's the difference between Six Sigma and Lean and how regulatory agencies work. Dr. Mort gave us a lot to chew on. And of that, Dr. Batalden says perhaps the biggest area to master is that human factors piece. Systems are thorny and interconnected and complicated. And so it's almost never the case that you identify a problem that can be solved within the silo that actually noticed it first. So it's usually the case that you need to cross over into other people's territory in order to bring people together to solve a problem. 
you know, it's the five blind men and the elephant. And so they see it as uh, as a, a long, narrow rope if they're standing next to the tail, or they see it as a fat hose if they're standing next to the trunk, or a big fat wall if they're standing next to the side. And so it's important to understand all the silos and the stakeholder perspectives early on. Which side of the elephant are they standing on? What do they see? Because you'll need it for two reasons. If you're going to be a QI person, that's your job, is to help figure out what is actually going on so you can help solve it. Then the second half of your job becomes convincing people to do things differently, which is a, a challenge. So you'll first need to make the right diagnosis or diagnoses of why, for example, the sepsis protocols aren't being followed and understand that from multiple stakeholder perspectives and then go back to all of them, get them on the same page about making a change, which is no easy feat. Right now, a lot of people are burned out and they want control over their lives and don't want someone from Quality Improvement coming and telling them how to do things. And so figuring out what would help them move forward and what would motivate them is an important part of Quality Improvement. And sometimes it's about how can I make your work better for you? How can I free up your time so that you're using your time to work to the top of your license? How can I set up processes around you so that When you intend for something to happen, it has a higher likelihood of actually happening. Perhaps the best angle to take and hopefully the biggest motivator for everyone in healthcare is the patient. And so every time you can redirect to a patient story, to a patient voice, to putting a patient on your team, to diagramming the patient's journey, the patient's process through the experience, that tends to bring people together in ways that when you have nurses and doctors and medical assistants kind of fighting it out from their own, from their own vantage point, that gets, uh, gets messy. That really made me wonder. You know, a lot of times people in QI aren't the bosses of all the different groups working in the clinic or in the hospital system. How do they set themselves up to be successful? That brought up the very underappreciated area of interpersonal skills, specifically cultivating the habit of asking good questions and listening. And that's why asking questions helps. You have to really understand why people are upset or what they care about so that you can speak to that emotion. It seems like this aligns pretty well with the skills that we actually use for good patient care. You know, putting in that work upfront to listen, ask good questions to diagnose that very often multifactorial problem, you know, building that relationship that you can actually give recommendations. This is such a relational science. You know, there's all of the tools that have come to us from the world of manufacturing, process mapping and run charts and uh, checklists and uh, really sort of... Just a quick word from our sponsor. We all want to eat healthier, but let's be honest, between our busy schedule and the endless prep and cleanup, it feels kind of out of our reach. You know, we often are aiming for better nutrition, but end up compromising for quick fixes that are anything but healthy. Now, imagine a different scenario. Picture a day where you're coming home to gourmet, nutritious meals that are ready in just two minutes. With factors, that is possible. Factors delivers delicious, chef-crafted, dietitian-approved meals right to your door, ready to heat in just two minutes, giving you over 35 weekly options to choose from, from calorie smart to protein plus to keto. And don't forget, they have 60 plus add-ons for an extra boost from breakfast to midday bites. So you're not spending all your time and money in the hospital's cafeteria. So no prep, no mess, just real mouthwatering meals tailored to fit your schedule and dietary needs. With Factor, you're not just saving time, 
but you're elevating your meal game without the hassle of cooking. Head to factormeals.com slash Coriam50. Use the code Coriam50 to get 50% off. That's the code Coriam50 at factormeals.com slash Coriam50. Sophistication about the processes that we are designing and implementing and improving, but behind those processes are people, both people who come to work every day with the hope that they'll do something that makes a difference for somebody else with their own fears and joys and insecurities and their own desire for mastery. And in the end, the work that we do together is never going to be separate from the people who are doing the work. And mastering that relational science never ends. Whether you're the project lead on Unit 6 improvement or the CMO, the CNO, or the CQO, the very last skill to mention are the ones that you want to look into if you're really looking to move up that leadership ladder. From there, you want to gain more managerial experience. Do you manage people? Do you know how to hire and fire folks? Do you know how to organize teams and eventually budgetary responsibilities and so on and so forth? So you want to go from your training, fellowship, project-oriented portfolio, accountability, managerial experience, eventually budgeting. With that big picture wisdom on quality improvement in mind, I wanted to know what do QI people's days actually look like? Sure, on paper, they're navigating X, Y, or Z project, but what does it actually look like behind the scenes? So you ask, what is a typical day in quality and safety? Well, most of us use Outlook or some scheduling program to lay out what we expect to do in a day. What I would say is that that is a hypothesis in quality and safety. Maybe that's what you end up doing, but you may be interrupted because there might be a Department of Public Health surveyor who's shown up or the Joint Commission, or there might be someone who really needs to talk to you because they've just been part of an adverse event or found out they've been sued. Or you may need to uh, peel off and go around in an area that really needs your attention because they're trying to solve a problem on the unit. The caveat is, is that your day might look a little different if you end up taking more of an operational or administrative leadership role with a QI hat on. And at some point you have a branch in your career where you get to think about, okay, do I want to do this work as an operational leader? Do I want to be a division chief or a, or a department head? Because there's a significant amount of quality and safety work that is a constitutive part of being a leader. And so you could decide that you actually want sort of an operational line leadership role and you want to be a quality and safety advocate and manager and director and problem solver from that vantage point as an administrative leader. Or alternatively, uh, you, you want to stay in the quality and safety infrastructure and you want to sort of stay in that technical substructure, which is the quality and safety department in some ways. Both QI hats, the more boots on the ground QI work or the operational leadership work seem like pretty busy outlook calendar days. So you have to be sort of quick on your knees, quick on your feet and enjoy some flexibility. But as far as what you're doing in the outlook calendar, a lot of it is talking to people, is leading, is helping people navigate their way through their portfolio. The other QI hats that people can wear is if they cross over into adjacent fields like QI in med ed or QI in research. And those day-to-day activities definitely differ depending on which QI vantage point you're at. If you're an educator, your time is spent more 
taking cases that didn't go well and trying to figure out how to fit it into frameworks and explain it to trainees or other faculty. Or you're thinking about creating new programs that allow you to teach, which is where I love to spend all my time. And then if you're in the research side, you're writing grants, you're working with some of the people who are doing the clinical operations, or you may be looking at large data sets, that's more likely to be 80% kind of research time. And so there are people who wear all three hats. And so their days are very varied and do different things depending on what part of the day they're in. And so with those days being quite variable, I really wanted to understand then, what are the challenges that come with being in QI? The first really comes from that notion we were talking about earlier, that systems we work in are quite intertwined. And so there's always the risk of some unintended side effect. You may try to solve that one thing and then all of a sudden create other holes in the system that are now even more risky than what you we're trying to fix. And so recognizing the actual risk and the impact of the problem you're dealing with is important as you decide what to fix. Dr. Tess has seen this time and time again when the QI intervention entails just an EMR solution or an information system or IS solution. If they could just put an alert in to stop me from ordering two medications that interact with each other, If they could just do this, if IS could just do, and if you start a sentence with, if IS could just do, I want you to stop and think to whether that fix will actually cause unintended consequences somewhere else. So delaying care for some patients who really need it or creating so much fatigue that the providers don't see it anyway. Which brings us to one of the most common pitfalls, not studying the long-term impact of the intervention. You fix something in June, everything looks great in July, and you're like, hey, we're done, Um, all set, you know, instead of actually recognizing that you need to follow up in August and September and October to actually know, because most change is short-lived. Short-lived indeed. We had to factor in how solutions involve humans. They often get tired over time. Or factor in how sometimes our context change and old protocols might still be in place. I can imagine it's even harder because oftentimes there isn't a large grant or other resources to support these long-term evaluations. Picking solutions that aren't sustainable is another major pitfall. Uh, this happens to the best of us. I am definitely guilty of this. We care so much about a project We end up being the person that connects all the dots, monitors everything. But what happens when we leave or what happens when our plates get filled with something else? So starting to think once you've tested it enough that you know it's something that you think is going to work and be of value, then actually starting to think about sustainability. Can this survive past the individual champion? And then the corollary to that is if you test something and it doesn't work, then you got to let it go so that you're not spending a ton of time, resource, emotion, energy on something that doesn't really work. I feel like I'd have a really hard time letting go of something I really believed in, but I guess that's just a good mindset to take on. Be prepared for your intervention to not work. Anticipate the null hypothesis. But speaking of the null hypothesis, that can even be a pain point because there can be a lot of noise in the data. When you're doing quality improvement, You're often doing it in a small context, single site, single unit, uh, single clinic. And the data that you have is kind of messy. It's not research quality data. And so you're working with kind of good enough data that you can use to try to understand whether the change that you introduced 
actually accomplished what you hoped it would, but it often doesn't have the same degree of confidence that you might be expecting or looking for. The cherry on top and the last challenge is just the countless number of metrics. To me, this is the toughest challenge in QI because if those metrics aren't met, that means healthcare systems are losing a bunch of money or reputation. And I've seen over and over again how we can get so lost in trying to keep up with those metrics. I think that we've created a metric monster that's eating us for lunch. I think that we have way, way, way too many performance metrics. And too many of those metrics are metrics that are used for accountability. And it's very difficult to use accountability metrics for improvement because if the stakes are too high and you can't fail, then you can't learn and improve on those metrics. It is eye-opening to break down metrics into metrics for accountability and metrics for actual improvement. Come to think of it, I'm actually struggling thinking about metrics that have to do with actual improvement. At their best, improvement metrics are metrics where you are free to fail because you're learning from what you're doing. But we have hardly any energy left over in our reporting and analytics infrastructure for metrics that don't have high stakes associated with them, because it's basically taking all of our energy to just produce the numbers so that we can report them externally. And so then there's not a lot of energy left over to use those metrics for actual learning and improvement. And don't get me wrong here. Metrics do matter. But it seems like metrics are chosen because they can be measured, not necessarily because they represent excellent care. So maybe one way to navigate these metrics is to step back and really understand some of the shortcomings with the metrics. So we can pay a primary care doctor more or less based on the hemoglobin A1C average of their patient panel. But we also know that the hemoglobin A1C of a diabetic is actually not produced by the primary care provider, even if we punish them by cutting their salary, because the hemoglobin A1C is a lived outcome in the body of another human being. I asked Dr. Batalden how she navigates the tensions that metrics bring. She seems like someone who is so driven to do good in healthcare, but we live in this metric monster, right? How does she continue to keep her eye on the patient and do good? It's also the job of a, of a leader and a quality and safety leader to help set priorities. So we can't improve on 500 things at once, even if we have 500 metrics that we have to report externally. So it's our job to help set institutional priorities in a way that makes sense, that makes sense clinically, that makes sense uh, morally, that makes sense strategically. That makes so much sense. Anytime I speak to someone who's worked in multiple healthcare systems, they speak to that difference in culture that probably happens because of what's being prioritized at that healthcare center. So some places people are running around tense about discharging patients before a certain time. Other places, people are constantly feeling judged about their documentation or cost of tests. It certainly makes me really appreciate the leaders in QI who fight back against unreasonable metrics. And so we hope in this episode, we inspired some of you to really consider a career in QI. 
and become one of those QI leaders that helps move the healthcare system in a better direction. I think expertise in quality and safety should be a precondition for leadership in healthcare. Why do I say that? Well, because I believe it. But when I look at CEOs, COOs, CNOs, CMOs, those that have a sensibility about quality and safety, I believe are better leaders because we put leaders in charge of healthcare to make some tough decisions. A lot is about finance. A lot is about operations. But to have leaders who have that sensibility about quality and safety, my premise is that they will make better trade-offs because they understand the trade-offs better and they understand what the opportunities are from improvement in a way that people who haven't experienced this just simply don't. So one thing I would advise listeners is that you may not know exactly where you want to be in your career. Spending some time in quality and safety in a fellowship, job for a year or two, is time well spent just about anywhere you end up in a career in healthcare. And to close out, we wanted to leave you with some food for thought. There's a lot of great work being done in quality. But there's one place we haven't done as good of a job thinking about. And then the last and most important frontier that I think is really shaking the walls, the hallowed walls of healthcare institutions is this idea about equity. And that I think healthcare institutions historically have felt, well, we're here, we're in this, we're in these four walls and these facilities, we have we have reach to here. And that's not enough. The reach has to go beyond the healthcare institutions into the community in a way that has impact. And people have talked about that for a long time. I think what is different and what is wide open for quality and safety to be leaders in is how do we wrench in legislation, work with the communities, engage with schools, employers, religious organizations, businesses, people, and address social determinants of health through our influence. Thank you for joining us on the Core IM Career Series. We want to thank our partners, the American College of Physicians, and I'd like to thank my dear friend, Dr. Michael Shen, who helped co-produce this series with me. If you found this episode helpful, please share it with your team, your friends, your colleagues, give it a rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you use. It really does help people find us. And if you want to add your own tips, share your own challenges, please tweet us, leave us a comment on our website page, our Instagram or Facebook. We'd like to also thank Doc Shbatia for audio editing and Priyal Patel for the accompanying graphics, as well as Sophia Kennedy for also helping Off-Air produce this episode. As always, we'd love to hear feedback. Email us at hello at coreimpodcast.com. Opinions expressed are our own and do not represent the opinions of any affiliated institutions. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. 
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.